the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Briggs. Music provided by the 48th Highlanders of Canada. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix, CD. But that summer was exciting. It was exciting again to be a teacher. It was exciting again to be an instructor. Welcome back to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Briggs. We're going to continue on with our interview with Chief Warrant Officer Mike Lacroix. Then the very next thing that happens is we, because you you went away to the PPCLI sort of late springish. I got promoted as a result of taking over the office from you. And then because it was late spring, off I went to Meaford to teach for the summer. And when I went to Meaford to teach for the summer, it was the summer that the Airborne Regiment was assigned as the lead for summer training in Meaford. So essentially, the troops of the Airborne Regiment played enemy force, they played GD staff, they did all this other stuff. Maybe they were taking some of their, burning some of their summer leave as well, so they were in and out of Meaford. A lot of the Master Corporals and Sergeants were embedded in the platoons to help train our reservists from across Ontario. We had, our platoon warrant was Wayne Bartlett. He's now, I can't remember where he's working now. He did make it to Chief Warrant Officer, and then we had... Essentially, well, I guess he was an MWO, but Chief Warrant Officer Earl Gap was part of the headquarters of the command structure within Meaford. And that summer was very impressive. I got to meet people like my counterpart in 31 Brigade, David Elliott, who was also a sergeant at the time. It was the very first time we got to meet. We had a lot of platoons, a lot of sections. And there was a lot of moving parts that summer. And it was really well run. And it was a very enjoyable summer. I know that as a master corporal and as a sergeant, I've had crummy goes on summer concentration or summer summer training. Sometimes it was unpleasant to go away for the summer and teach. But that summer was exciting. It was exciting again to be a teacher. It was exciting again to be an instructor, to lead the soldiers, the new young soldiers, and to be teaching right beside members of the Airborne Regiment. That's great. It's good to hear that the opportunity to experience and learn from what I guess at that point in time would have been considered a significant experienced unit in the Canadian Armed Forces, albeit one that was going through some conflict in its own, but it was a unit nonetheless that was bred from tons of experience from all the major regiments from across the country, and is probably a really awesome experience for you to participate in. Yeah, absolutely. Then when I came back from summer training, so now it's September, because I did say my first year as a sergeant. When I came back from summer training, we were right into our regular routine calendar training. So my full-time job during the day was the unit recruiter. So I would run my normal work week. We would get a compressed work week, it'd be four days. So we'd work uh, Tuesday to Friday. And then it was understood that because you were working essentially from seven o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night on the Tuesday, and because you weren't given any extra time off for working weekends, it was just understood you were working weekends. You just simply got every Monday off. So some weeks you would go from Tuesday right to Sunday, have Monday off, and then you'd go from Tuesday right to Sunday again the next week. And it was just understood. Monday's your day off. We're not touching it. 
it doesn't matter what your schedule is or how busy you are, you can always bank on having Mondays off. So that's fine. So my regular day job was the unit recruiter. Now on Tuesday nights, I would run my recruiting office with my presentations and bring in enrollees. And I had a little, a couple of apprentice recruiters with me, Margaret Star Wars and Alan Craigie. They were members of my recruiting staff, young corporals at the time. And then we had our regular platoon running. So because I was a sergeant, I was still assigned to be a platoon to IC within the fighting company. So while I'm running the recruiting office and doing presentations, I'm also supervising section commanders going through either their battle procedure, assigning and teaching lessons, monitoring lessons, and making sure that the routine of the company is also being run. So I was a bit double-hatted there on Tuesday nights. Then the weekend would come around and I'd be right into the platoon as a platoon to IC whatever the unit needed on the weekend. Sometimes I would be within the fighting company as a platoon 2IC, but typically as soon as I became a sergeant, I was exclusively working at the platoon level. Yeah, that brings back memories. I can remember many, many weeks where you would be working Tuesday to Sunday and Tuesdays seemed to last forever and ever from the sun up until the sundown, having to do recruiting all day and soldiering and recruiting in the evenings with a small break to get a little bit of food in between your day and your evening. Yeah. I definitely recall that, and those memories are vivid of many occasions. Now, so that brings us around to Christmas. We had Christmas dinner. Of course, I'm a sergeant, so it's the first time that I'm serving Christmas dinner rather than being served Christmas dinner. So that was an enjoyable experience, and I've always been on that side of the table since then, obviously. And then we get into the spring. Well, the RSM at the time, Chief Warrant Officer Brian Barker, he approaches me as spring is coming. Oh, hang on, I skipped a part. Let me put that on pause for a quick second because there was another co-op course to teach during the day because in February we have the new high school term, so we have another co-op course running. So not only do I have my recruiting job to do, my Tuesday night job to do, my weekend job to do, now I'm a co-op instructor as well. So all this is going on and the RSM approaches me and he says, how would you like to take your platoon warrants course? And I said to him, you know what? <laughs> I'm busy enough as it is. I'm not, I, I don't have time to take another course. Are you serious? And then he says, yeah, I'm serious. Why don't you take your platoon 2IC course? And I told him it was too soon. I was in my first year as a sergeant and you're already putting me on the uh, platoon 2IC course. We called it the infantry 6B. I basically turned him down. I said, no, not a chance. I'm not going to do it. And then my friend Bruce Mayer, who is working in the QM and my friend Victor Cheney, who I was working with within the company, we're, we're talking about it. And then I went back on what I had said, and I, I said, you know what? I will do that course. I will take that course. There were two components to it. There was the senior leaders course, which is now replaced with the ILP. And we have the senior leadership course, SLC. So they're interchangeable, but now it's ILP instead of SLC. So that was your sort of drill administration and duties portion of, of the course. The 6B was your infantry platoon level tactical training. On that course, I met people like Brian James from the Lincoln Owella Regiment, who's now the RSM over there. Of course, I was shoulder to shoulder with Victor Cheney and Bruce Mayer. That was a tough course. You and I will agree that our infantry section commander's course was a tough course. The platoon 2IC course was unimaginably much tougher than the infantry section commander's course. The staff was very knowledgeable, incredible. 
They were a good source of information and mentoring and developing experiential learning. We had a crew of all sergeants from across Canada. We had Canadian Scottish. We had foot guards, the Montreal Grenadier guards, guys from all over. We had Glenn Moore, who I believe listens to the show. Sergeant Glenn Moore from the Royal Regiment of Canada was on that course with us as well. And I bring up his name. We had, we're deploying out to the field and there was absolutely no way they were going to give us buses. This was in Gagetown, New Brunswick in May. One of the shocks I had was arriving in Gagetown, New Brunswick in May and still seeing snow on the ground. That was a shock. But anyhow, we're on a ruck march out to the field to deploy for a number of days anyhow. And one of the captains, one of the captain instructors on the course, notices that Glenn did not bring his sleeping bag. So he says to Glenn, well, you don't have your sleeping bag, Sergeant. What's the matter with you? So Sergeant Moore says, well, I didn't think we'd have time to sleep, so I didn't bring it. The captain says, well, then when you're all cold and miserable and wet and shivering, well, we're all going to laugh at you. And without missing a beat, Glenn says, well, it's all part of the job, sir. (laughs) And everybody in the ranks choked because essentially the way he said it meant that it's his job to laugh at us. But in Glenn's mind, it was it's all part of the job being cold and miserable. But the way it came out, the captain didn't even know how to respond. He was choking himself. And all of us were trying out to burst out laughing. It was so funny. And we hadn't even hit the field yet. And there's Glenn poking the angry bear of the course staff, getting people all riled up. After a couple of days of doing platoon attacks over and over again, we do platoon attacks all day long. And then we do dig in defensive positions and send out night patrols all night long. For example, our first 24 hours, we got zero hours sleep. Our second 24 hours, we got one hour sleep. Our third 24 hours, we got two hours sleep. And our fourth 24 hours, we got four hours sleep. And I'll never forget that math. But anyhow. That's the glory of 6B. (laughs) Traditionally, 6B has always been like that. It doesn't matter who you talk to across the Canadian Armed Forces. You speak to any infantry section commander or any senior NCO that has had the opportunity to partake in 6B, specifically old school 6B, and they will tell you emphatically that it is always the same. It's in the lovely training area of Gagetown, New Brunswick, and it's always in the most fantastic times of year, and everybody has the same wonderful experience as you have been so eloquent in your description for us. Yeah. Horrendous. We're doing endless platoon attacks, and Bruce Mayer comes off his heart assess. He's done for the course. He has no more heart assesses. Essentially, all he has to do is soldier on, get to the end, and he's a graduate. I'm in the breach as the platoon 2IC. Bruce has just come off as the platoon commander. So we sort of pass each other nudgingly, like, well done, good job, and he's sort of good luck. We're getting ready to roll. Well, we pass each other. And then I noticed that the guy that was assigned to be the platoon commander shows up with a Carl Gustav 84mm recoilless rifle, which is essentially a big giant tank gun. Google it. You'll see what I'm talking about. I noticed that now I have to reassign the 84mm Carl Gustav recoilless rifle. Who am I going to assign this to? Mare, 84! <laughs> So Bruce turns around, he's like grumpy, fuming, and all this. So, so he's all grumpy and miserable, and, and it's like, okay, so off we go. We do my iteration of platoon attack. I pass. I'm good to go. I'm done my heart assess. I go back to my section, and I notice the section is in a bit of a bickering match. 
because the person who was the section commander of my section has now been pulled out to fulfill one of the command roles of the course. So he's either going to be the platoon 2IC or the platoon commander. So I come back to my section and they're all snipping and snapping at each other. So one guy says, well, I'm not going to be the section commander. Well, I was section commander two times before. So I walk into this and I go, fine, I'll be the section commander. Here's the C9, which is the light machine gun. Give me your rifle. You cam up, you move over here, you do this, you put that away. And he's like, oh, settle down, man. You don't have to be like that. I said, yes, I do. And then actually the person that was called out of our section to be the hard assess was Victor Cheney. So now I notice that the staff is starting to play around with Artie Sims while Victor is trying to figure out his orders on how to get the platoon moving again and what his next objective is. And I see that they're starting to pull Artie Sims out. Artie Sim, it's essentially an explosive with a whistle on it. It simulates incoming artillery for people that don't know. I get up. I tell my section, all right, three section up, follow me, extended line, let's go. So we come up jogging up the road, very wide road. But anyhow, we come up jogging up the road towards Victor. Victor sees what the staff is doing and how they're about to launch an artillery attack on our position right where we were. I jog past Victor. He's standing stunned looking at me. And he goes, okay, three section point, one section left, two section right, everybody move. And we're already moving, so we've already got the point. He doesn't have to think about us. I just looked at him, gave him a little wink, a nudge, and he's like, oh, thank God. (laughs) And we're off, and we're moving. And the staff has no chance to throw artillery at us or do any such thing or make Victor look foolish or make him look incompetent or look like he's not in control. But... Man, if I had hesitated or if I had waited and just been the C9 gunner and let one of those bickering guys try to lead the section, it would have been a little bit silly. Yeah, It's very seldom that you get an opportunity to get one up as per se on instructors on a course like that. But when you do see it, you must take it. It's the unwritten code, I believe, that when you see the opportunity, you got to take it and you got to go. Yeah. I mean, Victor and Bruce and I will share those stories over and over whenever we get together they're they're timeless stories they're they're just full of humor and full of pain but anyhow we got through it so then coming out of that year we're back to the summertime again so i'm kind of playing with my year a little bit here by extending it into the summer because i already started before the summer but that next summer i was assigned as the gd and camp security section commander for blackdown park cadet camp I had a section of fairly switched on guys working for me. I had Corporal Jason Kesa, who I know is a listener of the show. I had Corporal Karen Lalicon. I had Corporal Spence Sales, who went on to be commissioned in the U.S. Cavalry as an Armored Corps officer. Actually, you know that big Stetson that you see in movies like, for example, Apocalypse Now? Yep. He has one of those. And one of the traditions in the U.S. Cavalry is you can wear the cap badge of your former unit on your Stetson. So he proudly wears the cap badge of the Toronto Scottish on his US Cav Stetson as part of his officially authorized uniform, which uh, I think is quite unique. David Spence Sales was in my section. Bruce Mayer, also assigned to Blackdown Park Cadets. He was a newly promoted warrant officer right off of that course. I still had time to do before I could be promoted. So I was still a sergeant, which is fine. And Bruce was a newly promoted warrant officer and he was a cadet camp company sergeant major. And in his episode of the Canadian Military History Podcast, he talks about working beside Major Purdy, who was actually a colonel who took down his rank to do that summer tasking. But anyhow, so I was working with Bruce Mayer and essentially that was my full-time job was living and working 
at the cadet camp, making sure that our 24-hour security was running and our maintenance program was running, and I was responsible for both aspects of that. Well, two major incidents came out of that that kind of, well, they make me laugh, but one of them was very serious. Another one was kind of ridiculously foolish. So we'll start with really serious. So it's a long weekend, and I struck the duty of being on shift for the long weekend. There's a couple long weekends in the summer, so obviously I had one off, and this time I was on the hook to be on duty. And Base Borden is known for its summer violent storms. And every year we get one outrageous at least one outrageous summer violent storm, and and this summer was no different. The cadet camp was essentially all modular tents, and that was my job, going through repairing modular tents, because the cadets would climb on the top and they'd rip through and fall in, so we'd just replace out panels and make sure that any minor repairs were, were maintained and any maintenance duties like that. But this windstorm came in, tents got picked up and were never found again. There were kids... Because all the kids come from across Ontario to this one place, and not every kid and not every cadet is capable of going home for the weekend. And because it was a long weekend, a lot of the senior staff were away normally, and they left some of their civilian volunteers behind just to supervise and make sure that the cadets weren't in any trouble. Essentially, this windstorm came in. These tents go flying all over the place. I'm in the security trailer, and our trailer's being rocked hard. And then the storm passes, and it clears like a light switch it's cleared away there's no there's no more residual storm there's no rain or anything so i grab my mountain bike and i go out and survey the damage because it's my job to put it all back together so then you might have to bleep this part of what i'm going to say but anyhow i go surveying the damage and i'm i'm on my bicycle and i hear a voice off in the distance you stay away from there and i i'm not paying attention to what this noise is because it's just background noise to me and what it is All the tents had electrical wiring for the lights and there was one outlet for maybe a radio that the cadets could listen to. And all that wiring was all mixed up in the tents and all the personal gear and the aluminum frames were all down and there was wires. And I'm just surveying the damage to see how I'm going to prioritize putting all this back together. And then I hear that voice again, you over there, get away from there now. And I'm like, this is getting annoying. So I keep hearing that this noise. And then I hear, you, with the bicycle, get away from there right now. And I turn around and I go, would you shut the f*** up? That's where you're going to have to believe it. But anyhow, he says, don't tell me to shut the f*** up. I'm a lieutenant. And I said, I don't care. I'm the son of a who has got to put all this back together in the morning. So shut the f*** up. So anyhow. So now he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I don't care if you're sorry. Just stop talking to me. Leave me alone. I got a job to do. So anyhow, I survey the damage and there's kids huddled in the shower huts. You remember those cinder block shower huts they had? They're all huddled in there and there's kids panicking all over the place. And some of them are hyperventilating and some of them are going into panic attacks and just hysteria, that kind of thing. So I come around the corner And I see a young cadet, and he's crouched on the ground. And the one thing that stands out vividly in my mind is his St. John Ambulance first aid patch on the sleeve of his cadet uniform. And he's crouched over this unconscious little girl. I walk up to him, and I go, what's going on here, cadet? He says, she's not breathing. And I'm like, oh, God. So I go down, and I see this little girl, and I check, and absolutely not breathing. She must have been 11, 12 years old. Limp doll, not breathing. So what do I do? Go right into it. First aid, throw in that first puff of breath. 
and I get the, the lungs working again. She comes back to life like a spark. She's gasping for air. I roll her over into the recovery position, sort of cradling her head on my lap. And I, I, I honestly genuinely believed she was throwing up all over me, but I really didn't care because she was alive. So that's all like, if she's throwing up, that means she's not dead, which is good. I have her in my lap, cradling her head, sort of in the recovery position. And who comes around the corner? My savior, David Spence Sales. He sees me on the ground with a little girl in my lap. And he goes, uh, what's going on? I said, David, get me a truck now. And David could have picked up a truck and walked with it over to me, but he understood that I needed it running. So he didn't actually lift it and carry it on his back because he could have easily done that. He's just that kind of guy. So he brings over the biggest truck he could find, a big, long, super cab, extended pickup truck. I go, perfect. Throw the little girl in in the back of the pickup truck. I tell Dave, just drive to the, the MIR. There was a little camp medical infirmary within our camp lines. I didn't take the girl to the base hospital. I took her straight to the MIR. By the time we get there, she's on her feet. She didn't puke all over me. She was just coughing. So I was kind of relieved that I wasn't covered in puke. She's on her feet. She's aware. But I still want her to get checked out. So then this civilian comes out of the trailer and starts yelling at me. She goes, are you the one sending people to us? I said, well, I sent one person, which was the girl I thought was dead, but I didn't say that. She says, you got to stop sending people to us. These people, they don't need to be here. They're just, they're just hysterical. All you got to do is pinch them. And then she grabs my arm and pinches me. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So I took an unconscious little girl that was not breathing on the brink of death to the hospital so that I could be jacked up. And I honestly, genuinely believed that this was a civilian volunteer that worked at the hospital, so I let it go. The next day, she was wearing the rank of a master corporal, and I was furious. I let it go. I didn't give her both barrels, but the next day when I was at the meal line and she was in uniform and and I was in uniform and well I was in uniform during the whole disaster but nevertheless when I saw her in her uniform and she's got the rank of master corporal on I was furious and she was a medic the person that pinched me and yelled at me yeah she was a medic a medic I don't know which medical company I've never seen her I mean I got to know people from 25 Medcoy and which is now 25 Field Am I got to know them pretty well so she could have easily been from the medical unit out in Hamilton or she could have come from anywhere in Ontario. She could have come from Ottawa or London or wherever medics parade within Ontario. So the second little incidents that happened, we had a panty thief. Corporal Casey, you can start laughing any minute now. We had, no, I'm not blaming you for being the panty thief, by the way, Corporal Casey. You're good to go. Corporal Casey was on duty that night, and he was on routine patrol within the campground. And what we're on alert for is this panty thief. So some person, presumably a cadet, was sneaking into the cadet tents and stealing panties from the female cadets. Where they were turning up, I don't know. I, I don't think we ever caught our mysterious panty thief. Corporal Case is out on patrol. I'm on duty as the uh, supervisor for the night shift, and I always assign myself on the same routine as the rest of the crew to share the wealth. Corporal Case gets on the radio, and he says, hey, we caught some guy running through the tent lines. And I go, okay, well, you know, maybe he caught the panty thief. So I walk out. And I head over to where Corporal Kesa has this guy detained. And the guy turns to me and goes, are you in charge here? I go, well, yeah, I'm in charge of the security for the camp. What can I do for you? I was chasing the panty thief and your guys tackled me and they've made me fall and I didn't catch him. I said, okay, so who are you? Like this civilian, long haired, greasy civilian, curly hair down to his collar, beard and jeans. I'm like, who are you? I'm with the military police. I said, okay. Well, did you think of checking in with us before you start doing all this covert action? He's like, no, I'm not going to check in with you because one of your guys could be the panty thief. 
I'm like, really? My guys are not here to steal panties off children, all right? We're here to provide security, not act in that manner. And he's like, you can't talk to me like that. I'm with the military police. I want to see your ID. I'm like, okay. So I pull out my wallet, take my military ID out, give it to him. I go, keep it. (laughs) Honestly, the way he was acting was just completely inappropriate. So he's like, yeah, keep it. I'm with the MPs. I have a gun. And I said, okay, so what are you going to do? Shoot me? Like, shoot me now and get it over with. Like, go ahead. What are you trying to say that you have a gun? And Corporal Kesa and all the guys on the crew start laughing hysterically at him. They're just crying. They're in tears because the guy was acting so rudely and so nasty. Like, it's such a nasty demeanor towards me. And I was just calm, cool. Here's my ID. Keep it. Oh, go ahead. You got a gun? Shoot me then. Like, what, what do you need to tell me you have a gun for? Like, what, what, what are you trying to get out of that? But anyhow. Was he legitimately an MP? Yeah. Yeah, because he put in a complaint against me. <laughs> wow. Because my crew tackled him. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, whatever. <laughs> I, I didn't have anything to do with him. Like, I, just some ignorant MP that just came on to our camp without telling us, starts doing secret squirrel covert action, armed, and then uh, gets upset when my security force, which is actually doing their job quite effectively because they caught him, ends up interfering with his plan. All he had to do was check in with us, and we would know who he was, and we'd leave him alone. But he didn't want to do that, so anyhow. Well, there's one out there all the time. The MPs, they're, they're made of a different breed, that's for sure. So there you go. That's my, uh, my most memorable experience, my first year as a sergeant. Well, you definitely had a lot in that first year, and it's made for a pretty memorable experience, for sure. Okay, Mike, moving along here. So what is your greatest achievement as, alongside your most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces? Well, I have to say that my greatest achievement is achieving the rank of Chief Warrant Officer. When I was a recruit, Drew Gilmore sat us all down and we had our field message books out and we're taking notes and he said, I want you to write down what you expect to do in the Canadian Forces. A little bit of a a visioning exercise, I suppose, if you really want to put it that way. What he wanted was for us to basically envision our career. And some guys wrote down, you know, I want to be a jumper. Uh, Some guys, I want to be recce. Some guys, I want to go to overseas to Cyprus or whatever, because we had that, we, we, we had very limited opportunities for tours in those days. But all I did, I took the rank structure and I wrote it down in a single column because that's the way it was the easiest way to get the job done. And I wrote down all the ranks on the paper. And I'm very pleased to say that I achieved that goal as I laid out in the recruit by going through all the ranks. But anyhow, as the regimental sergeant major, so I got promoted to chief warrant officer in 2006, and I was appointed the RSM of the Toronto Scottish Regiment. During that time as the RSM of the Toronto Scottish, I was very fortunate to be appointed as the parade sergeant major for the presentation of colors for the Royal Regiment of Canada and the Toronto Scottish Regiment. I've always told the Royals that I will always march off with them. I will always stand at their regimental march because I was parade sergeant major for their presentation of colors. And I really think that that my my personal relationship with the Royal Regiment of Canada has, has really improved I don't want to say improved because that says it was poor before, but it's at an all-time high, nevertheless. I also got to march the regiment out of Fort York Armory and into uh, the new armory in Etobicoke, the joint building with Toronto Police. There was a lot of attachment to Fort York Armory within members of the regiment, and it was vital to have a fitting moment to get everyone out of Fort York and into Etobicoke and make it memorable. Actually, that was the day of your wedding as well. So I had I had 
two parades in one day and a wedding up in uh, your neck of the woods all on the same day. So anyway. Well, it looks like we've run out of time for this segment. Please stay tuned and come back to hear the remainder of my interview with Chief Warrant Officer Lacroix.